Hello and welcome to the Armenian News Network Grung Week in Review. I'm Asbet Bedrosian and along with Hovik Manucharian, this week we're going to talk about the following major topics. Armenia-Russia relations and the new Cold War, a phrase used by Mikhail Gorbachev to describe renewed U.S.-Russia tensions in 2014. Iran-Russia and Iran-Armenia relations, election politics and the latest MPG polls, and Serge Sarksyan's interview. And to talk about these issues, we have with us Marine Manucharian, no relation, president of the Civic Forum NGO. Her areas of focus include Artsakh, the Armenian Armed Forces, national security and foreign policy. And Dr. Pietro Shakarian, a Cleveland-based historian of Russia and the Soviet Union, with a focus on Soviet Armenia and the Caucasus during the era of Nikita Khrushchev's thaw. Hello and welcome, everyone. Hi. Hello. Good evening. Pietro, I don't recall seeing the doctor in front of your name in December. <laughs> so tell us what's been going on here. Yeah, well, this is this is new, Hovik. Um, I, I just successfully defended my PhD dissertation. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm going to be conferred my degree from uh, Ohio State in, uh, in a week, next week, as a matter of fact. And uh, as you may recall, my topic of research was on Anastas Mikoyan and his reforms in the nationality sphere, his role in de-Stalinization, including de-Stalinization in Armenia. And if you want to check out more, uh, we had an earlier Groom podcast, I believe, on this subject. Yeah, so, we, uh, it was uh, back yeah. in December, so I would urge our listeners to... Uh, check that out. It's on our YouTube channel, yes. Okay, yes, and and all the other channels that we have. <laughs> so congratulations, Dr. Shakarian. We look forward to your contributions uh, to human scholarship, education, and insight for years to come. Thank you. Congratulations, Pietro. Yeah. So on to our first topic of Armenia and Russia relations and the quote-unquote new Cold War. I wanted to begin with trying to understand Nikol Pashinyan's relationship with Moscow. There have been several instances of bizarre public statements and behavior by Pashinyan that uh, cast doubt on his relationship with Moscow. We all remember the story about the Iskanders, the prisoners of war who didn't arrive, and then Moscow was blamed for them, etc. And then uh, most recently, according to leaked audio from Pashinyan's private meeting with uh, Armenian lawyers in Moscow, I believe that was um, earlier in April, he said that peace until September 2020 existed only because it served Russia's interests, hinting at the fact that war then started because now it was in the interest of Moscow. Or at least that's a takeaway that many people took from that. Pietro, recently Pashinyan said that relations with Russia were, are, and will be good with Russia, but is everything really rosy with Putin there? No, I, I don't think that they are, and I've long, you know, believed this. Uh, even when uh, there were some commentators who were saying that, you know, in the aftermath of the deal, it maybe suits Putin to have Pashinyan there. The reality is that the Kremlin leadership, even from day one, was never too enthusiastic about Pashinyan, especially with all the moves he was doing, in particular prosecuting former authorities in Armenia, and just in general kind of his flirtations with the West and all sorts of other issues. We've discussed this in earlier podcasts, but in general they've never been too enthusiastic about Pashinyan from day one. So that relationship has never been, you know, ideal, to put it mildly. And also, as we know, there were several members of his administration who were very pro-Western and anti-Russian. And they had long kind of uh, sought to kind of influence him to take an even more overt anti-Russian stance, so to speak. So no, the, the relationship has never been terribly good. And I think that these statements just kind of unmask what was already there, so to speak. That's interesting. One would not think that, you know, interpersonal relations should be mixed with uh, relations based on the interests of the country. So I wanted to ask, Marine, are Pashinyan's relationships with Moscow indicative of the overall Armenian relations? I mean, they can't be too disparate, can they? Pashinyan never had the chance, like not, he didn't have too many chances in the past to build up some, uh, you know, these core relationships with the Russians as such. So he did have uh, very few of those chances. And I think as a personality, he did fail in terms of, uh, you know, being able to have like these ties or be predictable or trusted by the Russians. And he's very, uh, you know, after coming to power, we've all seen how dramatically and drastically he failed in terms of um, 
making sure that the Russians accept and understand him, him as a person or as a leader. He was very unpredictable. He still is unpredictable. And he was trying to actually, uh, you know, build up this relationship on a very shady, you know, like, let's say, on a, on a, on a non-fundamental um, you know, in a not very good way. I don't think it's indicative uh, to Armenia-Russia relationship. It's more of a Pashinyan-Russia relationship and Pashinyan team-Russia uh, relationship because these are like group of people who are not trusted by the Russians and full stop. So that's why in Armenia there is this intrigue between Kocharyan and Pashinyan teams, one being trusted, one not being trusted, and uh, also very important for Russians being predictable uh, as a matter of fact. We talked about uh, Biden's recognition of the Armenian genocide last week. And in the aftermath, there have been differing interpretations on the significance of that step, especially when it comes to uh, geopolitics. Uh, some see it purely in terms of U.S. settling scores with Turkey. Others, such as uh, several pro-Western political forces in Armenia, see it as a sign of Washington's intentions to re-engage in the region. For instance, uh, the a fringe opposition group, the Armenian National Poll, <laughs> Uh, was out on the streets singing the, the American national anthem. You know, the news of the recognition was followed by a bizarre interview that U.S. Ambassador Lynn Tracy gave uh, to Azat Utsun, where she refused to use the word genocide again throughout the entire interview. Marina, did you have a chance to hear Tracy's interview? And what are your impressions? I did not follow the subject closely because I, for me, it was a, um, you know, gen genocide fuzz uh, around the geopolitical issues that are going on. So I didn't go deep into the noise around it. That's why I missed that interview probably. So sorry, I can't say much about it. Yeah, she said several things where people spun it different ways. Like she also said like when... Um, Tom Rezian asked her, well, you know, several times, well, can you please give us weapons and so forth? <laughs> she said that, you know, Armenia's membership in the uh, CSTO precludes uh, or severely limits that cooperation, even though we know that the uh, United States provides Tajikistan, Tajikistan Kyrgyzstan, yes. and even Azerbaijan, even though they call it not military aid, they call mm -hmm. it some kind of like counterterrorism operation. But still, you know, it's significant U.S. Um, uh, investment or U.S. aid in that region. And a lot of people spun it in, in a way that, see, if, if, we, if we leave the CSTO, then the U.S. will provide us all the aid that we need. Oh, it's, it's actually interesting to see that people are not spanning it towards the direction that you see that the U.S. is actually, is not about genocide, it's about completely different things. And it's not about CSTO, yeah. it's actually about the U.S. interest in the region and, uh, you know, the fact uh, what is happening around Sunik area and also Iran and China being engaged as well. So I think it's very primitive of our society to look into it from such a, you know, uh, Purely humanitarian. Pure, yeah, it's like yeah. purely humanitarian intervention. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, uh, that's that's what people resonates with most people, I think. Uh, uh, Pietro, so according to Emily Sanamian, who is a regular guest of ours, the U.S. is on a path of withdrawal from the region, and we can sort of not expect anything from the U.S. in terms of our geopolitical partnership or draw any strength from that. Do you agree with this assessment? I think he, he's partially correct. I mean, there is kind of a uh, move to withdraw from the region, but I would caution against thinking that the U.S. is going to pull out of the region completely. So if we're talking about somebody like Tulsi Gabbard or the retired Colonel Douglas McGregor, if they were in charge of U.S. foreign policy, then maybe we would see a, a truly kind of anti-interventionist policy. But the reality is that the U.S. war party and the military-industrial complex, which President Eisenhower warned against in his farewell address in 1961, uh, they still dominate the U.S. foreign policy establishment. But at the same time, with these domestic pressures you have in the U.S., like BLM, like COVID, like the economic inequalities, um, Washington is increasingly under pressure to come home. I mean, we have this idea of George McGovern's phrase, you know, come home America, well, that's kind of the idea. We see a little bit already with Afghanistan, with Biden saying he's going to kind of pull out or pull back from Afghanistan. Um, and as we know, the forever wars are very unpopular with the American public. However, U.S. military spending remains massive, and U.S. foreign policy elites remain focused on confronting Russia and China. It's all over the news. It's all over the media. Um, and these are two countries, of course, with significant nuclear arsenals. Now, on top of that, uh, I'm not sure we're going to see a dialing down of the U.S.'s confrontational stance toward Russia because 
in January uh, this year in Foreign Affairs, which is our most influential U.S. foreign policy publication. Michael McFaul, who was the former U.S. ambassador to Russia under Obama, basically was calling on the Biden administration to contain Putin, to launch an all-out containment strategy that would involve beefing up support to several post-Soviet countries, including, and this is the order in which he listed them, Ukraine, Armenia, Georgia, Moldova, and Uzbekistan. And in addition, he also called for overthrowing Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus and imposing more sanctions on Moscow, which uh, the United States government actually did just a few weeks ago. So you had that also just, uh, you know, just days really after the statement uh, on Karabakh uh, was signed by uh, Pashinyan, Aliyev, and Putin, there was an op-ed by Ben Hodges in the EU Observer. Uh, ben Hodges, the retired U.S. Lieutenant General, uh, basically wrote uh, that the U.S. should beef up its p presence in the Caucasus, restore relations with Turkey, and immediately admit Georgia into NATO and basically kind of create a lasting U.S. military presence in Georgia, right? And so this was, uh, like I said, in response to the presence of Russian troops in Karabakh. So this, this shows you kind of where everything is going. Now, Pashinyan, it's not just even the fringe parties. I believe actually Pashinyan hopes that, that, that Biden will provide certain support. This is why, this explains why he has such weird, bizarre statements uh, toward the Russians, because he doesn't fully uh, trust them, I don't believe. I remember that and as Marina uh, said, yeah. there was some talk that the war, in fact, uh, lasted as long as it did because Armenia was holding out uh, until the last minute in hopes that, you know, the change in power in, in Washington would somehow, uh, you know, influence the U.S. to be more active and, and, and in, in Armenia's favor during the, you know, somehow change the course of the war. Is there any truth to that, yeah. Marina? What do you think? <laughs> that makes me laugh. No, I mean, I, I think uh, my opinion was elaborated a number of times about this. It's one thing when you expect another power change in another country to intervene, and it's another thing how you handle the entire war in your own country. And uh, with so many bizarre statements coming out of the Armenian government about the, uh, you know, what the general chiefs of staff said, what they didn't, and all that, you know, fuzz around the, uh, the, classified, the classifying information that they had from the meetings, or Nicole stating that he was not a commander-in-chief but rather a moderator between generals so with all this is really uh, i don't know it's not even serious to say that pashinyan was anyhow waiting for americans to uh, you know change the power bring biden into the office and some miracles would happen with the way armenia handled the war itself i also want to add something else too that actually i was talking uh, with harat mikhailian about this he was thinking that the there was a significant strain in the Pashinyan administration that actually believed that you know Biden would support Armenia if he won, and actually this was reflected in some way by Pashinyan's very kind of elaborate congratulatory note to Joe Biden right after he won. So there is kind of the sentiment, and if Pashinyan is harboring those sentiments, that the West is going to help us, that the Americans are going to help us. This again echoes exactly the mistakes that the leaders of the first Armenian Republic made in 1918 uh, to 1920. So I, I can't believe this. Uh, you have an Armenian leader who should be learning the lessons from the history and he's not. Yeah, but that's assuming that he is actually aware of the Armenian history or he is actually well, knowledgeable about point. all this. And also, we, we do believe that it's like diplomacy 101, like he has the U.S. ambassador, I mean, Armenian ambassador to U.S., who is not getting the directions he's supposed to get. He's appointing and sending mixed messages who is going to appoint next ambassador to United States, like some amateur group of people that they think if they just come out, out on the stage and make some sort of statements, then that will, you know, uh, get the game going. But it's not how it works. I mean, you guys are very well aware how things work in Washington, D.C. It's not like Biden sits and watches his lives, you know? <laughs> yeah, and in fact, these news about like a upcoming uh, appointment of Malkuns, uh, you know, they've been going on for months. And <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, even if you were to, going to do it, you would do it quickly, right? You know, right, right now there's this uncertainty whether Nersesian is going to remain 
as the ambassador, and I think that's not undermining his credibility in, in Washington as well. And of course, Biden did win. And what happened to the war? No, there was no effect on the war. No, nothing no. is about to change exactly. this fast. Yeah, exactly anyway. right. You know, no. he, he, even if he did win, and uh, you know, you assume that you know, several months. So January plus several months. You know, you, uh, would Armenia be able to hold off, uh, you know, Azerbaijan for six months until Biden finally decides to act, even assuming like all the fantasies that this is true? I mean, there were already interference from Russia on October 18, and they even failed to accept that interference right. with much better terms than they did accept in the end of the day on November 9th. So well, I don't know if we're talking about serious people or we're just so, talking so, about... So in general, I think that clowns. this counting on U.S. support is is a fool's gold. I think we all agree here. Uh, <laughs> I'll, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, you can, count, you can count to any support as long as you're actually doing your homework better and you're preparing the infrastructure for any sort of support. He thinks that it's a matter of statements and pleasing people, like just like he went to Russia <laughs> and said our favorite show is May 9th Parade. <laughs> Now we ended up three years later having a May 9th parade in Stepanakert done by the Russian military presence there, not our own armed Oof. forces, for yeah. Christ's sake. So, yeah. I mean... The know. other thing, too, I also wanted to add about this is that uh, the statement, um, I think, in some ways is indicative of, uh, you know, kind of Turkey losing its trust both in Washington and in Moscow. So Turkey, um, uh, to some extent, um, it has maybe these disagreements with the United States in the Middle East, and then you have this impact of this genocide recognition, which you know is to send a message to Erdogan. Then Erdogan thinks he can turn to Putin. Well, in addition to his uh, you know interference in the Karabakh issue, there was also his support for Zelensky in Ukraine. Uh, you know, sending him Bayraktar drones. You know, kind of encouraging him. And Zelensky actually um, was originally like the peace candidate in Ukraine. Um, but he's losing popularity and he's looking for friends and so this is kind of like, I guess you could call it like a marriage of convenience where Erdogan is kind of helping him or kind of uh, encouraging him maybe to retake uh, the parts of Donbass that are rebel held uh, Donbass. So that too is another dimension in all this as well. Interesting. Well yeah. also selling his military hardware doesn't hurt the economy. <laughs> and actually, it's it's Turkish way of dealing. If you look at their behavioral pattern, it's like they can uh, gain this kind of friends against Russia. They might not help them all the way till the end. They might not end up, you know, helping them militarily just after selling the military equipment. But they can sell it to Russians as, you know, using it as a bargaining chip in the end. Like they don't right. need to go all the way back. And this is how Turkey was doing during the past decade, at least with Erdogan. Like they don't have to push all the way but they can always sell it and say okay we don't need it but you have to give us something in return so this is the the way they dealt and that worked so if the armenian government was smart enough they could have done that too but well and, and you, you, know, you have to have something in your with. hand to trade with right so unlike erdogan i think uh armenia in general and pashinyan uh, you know have very little to give or take uh, so they have to i think be mindful of their weight class but all right, let's let's move on real quick. So, uh, Azerbaijan's possible membership in the EAEU. Uh, so this past week, the Eurasian Union or EAEU uh, representatives gathered for a summit uh, meeting in Kazan on April 29. We learned that Azerbaijan did not participate in this summit, as had been hinted in the press for some weeks that they might be there as observers. Uh, this was reported as a, the first political step to eventual membership in the organization. Analysts indicated that Azerbaijan's participation hinged on Armenia's approval because it's a uh, it's a consensus-based organization, and uh, Armenian officials a week prior to the event indicated that they were you know considering whether to allow Baku's participation, and effectively it appears that Armenia has vetoed Baku's participation this time. It's natural to assume that Moscow would want Azerbaijan to join the EAU, and in fact some calculate that's the reason for Moscow being less than forthcoming in their support uh, in Artsakh, if that's truly what happened. Uh, you know, some say that Moscow did provide as, as much support as you know, it was obligated to. But anyway, so, but does Baku really want or need membership in the EAU? Marine, in your opinion, why did Baku not participate in the meeting in Kazan on April 29? And do they want to? The fact that uh, Azerbaijan, uh, I mean, this entire thing was going around Russia gaining Azerbaijan back and getting them into this EAU thing was clear 
quite long time, probably since the 2016 April war. However, uh, why they didn't participate in the Kazan, some speculations are because Armenia demanded it and they demanded the Po release. And if that doesn't happen, then Armenia will not allow Azerbaijan participating in. So I don't know whether this is true or not. However, if they did it, then good for them, at least some sort of a bold movement. And uh, this is the, the bargaining chip I was talking about. Like if they're able to actually stand up for themselves, then probably good for them. However, now I'm more skeptical about Azerbaijan becoming an EAU EU member because they're in a better place now than considering three years ago. Uh, and they're in a victorious place and they're a place where everybody wants to get in. Uh, the, the Turks want, uh, that is, I mean, the, uh, the Chinese and Iranians are kind of uh, cutting deals. So they're pushing out Russia. So why bother actually to, you know, uh, joining an EAU union when actually you can try to see what is the, what is, what else on the menu, let's say. Yeah. So I think Azerbaijan will take its time and will will consider uh, carefully how things are going. On the other hand, the situation inside Azerbaijan is also changing. So the public started understanding that this was not a pure victory as they are praising and talking about. So the, the things are getting a bit, you know, closer to get to the escalation. And I don't know if well. this is, uh, I don't know if this is posturing or there's some, you know, more behind it. Uh, there have been public overtures uh, between Baku and Ankara and uh, I believe there were some rumors of a union between Azerbaijan and Turkey. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about that? And is that sort of being brought up to as a counterweight and uh, trying to bargain to get more from Russia? Or is that actually... Uh, how things might end up. It can be very well uh, become a bargaining chip with Russians or it can become a union. They've been talking about, you know, two state, one nation union for years. And for now, I think it's uh, for them. Why not is one of the best chances. And considering the clouds gathering over uh, Sunnic region of Armenia and also recent days statements by the Aliyev about Sunnic and about uh, today's statement about Azeri forces going to Stepanakert in June. Uh, so all these are quite worrisome and I don't know what else this government actually uh, agreed upon with the, with our neighbors uh, and Russians as well. So this is about, I don't know, like things are going to escalate towards June as well, towards the elections. So I don't know whether it's going to be after 20th of June, because if it was before, I don't think Pashinyan would uh, make such a stupid mistake uh, announcing elections uh, like uh, after uh, what he agreed upon, like after the deadlines of what he agreed upon. Um, so I think after June 20th, we will have very serious uh, uh, tectonic movements as well happening in the region that he was keeping silence okay. about. It's just knowing him personally makes me expect the worst as possible. You know, like uh, he will he will hold the, the worst news for the end of the, of the, you know, so that we don't expect it at all. Pietro, uh, going back to the EU question, what changes if Azerbaijan were to be admitted to the uh, Eurasian Economic Union? Uh, what's in it for Baku, Moscow, as well as for Armenia, either on the up or downsides? Well, I think, Hovik, the problem is it's way too early to talk about this idea of Azerbaijan joining a, the same political union uh, as Armenia, because we they just came off, again, of this really nasty war and the tension is still very much there. I mean, you saw Azerbaijan's mistreatment of Armenian POWs. You saw, uh, you know, the, the hate rhetoric continues. Um, and so, you know, in order for there to be a cohesive union, including an economic union, which could be beneficial. I mean, we saw in like in the Soviet times, Armenia and Azerbaijan, there were, you know, open borders, people were trading, you know, more or less there was normal relations. But in this environment, after all these years of Aliyev stoking kind of this hatred against Armenians, and especially after this war, it's very difficult to just, you know, do something like this. This is this is a process that takes years to accomplish. Okay. So the idea that, you know, you, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there are economic benefits, you know, to cooperating with Azerbaijan, but in the right conditions. Right now, the conditions don't exist. I disagree a little bit. Can I okay. say why? <laughs> uh, I slightly disagree because it's not Armenia's union, it's Russian's union. So the Russians are going to push for it and they need a market, they need Azerbaijani market. And they don't care whether we love each other or not. The hatred towards Armenians is more no. of a restraining tool for actually 
holding on Armenia so that we do, we will never talk again about releasing our territories or fighting for our homeland or bringing back Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, you know, independently or out of Azerbaijan. So I think uh, this is not a, a, about Armenia and Azerbaijan at all. They can accept Azerbaijan. And it's a matter of, it's a, the question is whether Armenia will uh, have enough strength to say no to or put a veto against the Azerbaijani uh, uh, membership to the EAEU. Otherwise, uh, there would be no other obstacles. Russians will be absolutely fine, and they won't care whether we they hate us or we don't. We can live together or not. After all, in the 1920s, like uh, Armenian and Azerbaijani countries joined the, uh, the Soviet Union already with territorial disputes and you know splitting the countries and becoming members of the same union. So I think they will push for it as much as they can. I think, Russians need I think the, 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 the I think that uh, the historical context of the 20s versus today is different context. And I think that if we are to have any kind of union where Moscow is at the center, it undermines Russia's security interests to have two countries that uh, there's so much dispute and so much animosity between in the same union that I think for Moscow it's destabilizing. They can't just, you know, yeah, but put we don't force... have an army anymore. Well, but I'm not sure how that. We don't I mean, have an army anymore. It doesn't. If it, they don't get Azerbaijan, they're out of Caucasus. Like it's a matter of a year or two for Russia to be completely out of this region, and this is something they do understand. I hope at least, because if they don't, then everybody's screwed. But Iran, China, and Turkey are literally going to split this region so nicely that Russians will be completely out of it within a matter of time. So mm. maybe in five years, when the term of the peacekeepers will be solved. They will be just okay. out of it, okay. or they will have a fourth world war. Speaking of Iran, let's let's go to the next topic on the matter of Iran and Russia, or you know, regional geopolitics. Earlier this week, news from Iran shook the geopolitical world, putting into doubt that everything is rosy between Iran and Russia. Javad Zarif, Iran's foreign minister, in a leaked audio interview, lamented the fact that Iran's revolutionary guard. Uh, specifically uh, General Ghassim Soleimani, who was assassinated by U.S. in January 2020, working with Russia, actively interfered in Iran's foreign relations, impeding Iran's efforts to reach a nuclear deal with world powers. Now, this seems significant because, you know, if a nuclear deal happened, there may be completely different dynamics. The interview was not supposed to be published uh, until after the Iranian elections in June, but was leaked ahead of time to the Iranian press in the West, Pietro, do you think the leak was intentional? If so, what were the moderations of the leakers and what's the significance of this development in the context of regional geopolitics? Well, I think that the leak was an internal affair. I think that I mean, there, there's the possibility that this could, could have been an internal affair to undermine Zarif, to undermine conservatives within Iran. Uh, so we have the conservative camp, the radical camp within Iran. But I think that this, uh, you know, may have been intended to undermine Zarif, uh, and I think also it could be intended to, I mean, what it does de facto is actually it undermines, actually does undermine uh, Iranian-Russian relations. Uh, it shows that the whole situation is much more uh, complicated than uh, what people might assume. Now, we know there's a history of uh, that Russian-Iranian relations haven't been perfect over the centuries. So we go back to the 1820s. One of the reasons why we even have an Armenian state today is the result of the Treaty of uh, Turkmenchai. So uh, going back to that war, you know, Iranians to this day, that those concessions uh, in the Caucasus region, uh, that still has a bad taste uh, for many Iranians. I mean, you mentioned Turkmenchai today, they still, you know, resent that. There was also the post-World War II Iran crisis. So there's been tension throughout the history. but. Pretty consistently in, in recent decades, the relationship between Iran and Russia has been uh, very good, uh, and especially on issues like um, cooperation in Syria. But now this really kind of throws uh, you know, the relationship uh, into question and uh, you know, challenges it. I think at the end of the day, the relationship is strong enough that it can withstand this, but it shows uh, that, the, that the situation is much more complex uh, than uh, one might assume looking from the outside. But Pietro, uh, I think it's worth reminding that this was not a sort of a wiretap. This was a interview that Javad Zarif gave to a journalist with the agreement that it was not going to be published and, until after the election. So, uh, you know, if someone didn't leak it now... It would have been eventually leaked, yeah. 
the natural course of events developed, and uh, you know, it would only be published in June after the elections. It would still hurt Moscow's relations with Iran. So, you know, is it really an attempt to undermine Russo-Iranian relations, uh, or put put like essentially pull the carpet under under one of the political forces in in Iran, or was it? Maybe even a calculated move. Marina, let me ask you, do you have any thoughts on who may have leaked the interview? Why? And do you agree that Russia and Iran are strategic allies in general or on balance? And is it possible that their paths may diverge soon? Well, considering the fact that the conservatives are in power in Iran now and they were hoping to to be to remain in the power after elections as well. And if this interview was supposed to be published after the elections, so I believe that uh, they did this because they're confident that they have something much better on the on the stake than the relationship with Russia, or than the Russian relationship is, uh, you know, the, the relations with Russia is worth sacrificing for that something better. And if we look into the uh, not very uh, not not too far away, recently they did sign a deal with China. So I believe that it is it has something to do with it. So again, it is mostly the regional uh, aspect of it. In my opinion, I think it's because of the uh, coming to agreement with the Turks about the economic uh, routes that they are developing for transporting Iranian gas towards the uh, uh, Georgia up to the uh, east, I mean, up to the Europe, east, Eastern yeah. Europe, uh, where the Turks can have their the Turks can have their uh, ton up. So maybe this is an agreement that they all came together. So uh, that's probably an early uh, warning uh, that came out uh, organized by the rivals of the conservatives in Iran. Uh, this could be one of the uh, speculations that I can try to make. Uh, but of course, there might be uh, many, many other details that we are not seeing or missing so far. So Zarif was going to be one of the leading candidates in the presidential elections in June in Iran. Who is Russia backing in uh, those elections? I think they should be fine with the ones that they have in power today, at least before Zarif's uh, interview was leaked. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen after that. I don't think that they had any issue uh, with the Iranian leader. I mean, it, it seemed like to me, like, I mean, they had ideal relations. Uh, but apparently, as we see now, it was much more complicated than, uh, you know, the public appearances would show. Right. You know. And by the way, the Russian troops in Karabakh were being supplied from Iran uh, until recently. So Correct. that supplies will be cut off, as I've heard. And uh, they need to think of the other ways of supplying the troops in the, on the ground. Yeah. And also, I'd say, too, that the Sunik, too, this is also uh, emphasizes its importance, you know, in the region as, a, you know, a part of Armenia that borders Iran. And given Armenia's, technically, its status, its close relations with Russia, uh, Russia values Armenia holding on to that region. So this is another dimension as well, too. When we look at this, you know, Azerbaijani or Turkish designs on Sunik, that Sunik is a very, very critical lifeline to Iran, you know, for Armenia and for, for Russia, by extension. Yeah, Yeah, but at this point, Ru Iranians don't care whether Sunik will be Azeri, Turkish or whoever, as long as they will cut the deal. I don't think they really... I think we, we give too much importance of thinking that Iranians... Uh, value Sun Armenian Sunik. I think Iranians will be valuing Sunik no matter whether it's Armenian or Turkish or Azeri, as long as their goods are going there with no problem. Well, they're not going to have no problems if there's an unbroken Turkish belt forming the northern border of Iran. Yeah, that's because of NATO. It's not because of Sunik being Armenian. It's because of uh, having technically NATO on the southern border, I mean, northern border of their country. But didn't they so, say that for them, the uh, Armenia's territorial integrity is a red line? Yes. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, that's that's the reality. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't want to have a whole Turkic Union on their northern frontier, um, you know, especially because Azerbaijan is not as reliable an ally for Russia as Armenia is. So I think that for them to lose, for Armenia, if they were to lose Sunni, I think it would be not very good for Iran in the end. I mean, yeah. Well, under the current situation without Sunik in Armenian hands, NATO would expand eastward all the way to the Caspian, blocking Russia from the Persian Gulf and cutting Iran off from the Black Sea. Yeah, it's a, it's a very serious threat. I mean, also, you know, if Turkish gets in deep into the Caspian Basin, they could penetrate into Central Asia. I mean, there are all sorts of nightmare scenarios. Um, and I mean, I think, they already put on fire the entire frontier of Russia, technically from Tajikistan all the way to Ukraine is troubles and problems for Russia created as yeah. we speak. So, yeah. I mean, the, they are already in action. It's just, for me, is more surprising 
what the hell the Russians are thinking about because their actions are actually very, uh, you know, not reasonable. I'm they completely in agreement more, with you. Yeah, like they should have been more, not, I wouldn't say aggressive. Maybe they don't have the power as we think they do, but uh, they, they really are making very big mistakes. And that's, um, and we are the ones who are paying the price. So Marina, uh, in the context of Iran uh, relations, you, you hinted at uh, the deal with China. I just wanted to remind our listeners that China recently committed to invest over $400 billion in Iran over 25 years. Uh, in exchange for a steady supply of oil, and the deal includes, uh, unlike you know prior engagements of China in the Middle East, the deal includes a significant military component. Uh, this is bound to have geopolitical repercussions, as Marina mentioned. From that perspective, you know Armenia and Iran had previously announced intentions to build a north-south corridor that would allow Iranian goods and trade to reach Europe through Armenia, then Georgia, and so forth. Um, but uh, you know, to to my dismay, at least, and to the dismay of many, the project didn't seem uh, to receive a priority. Pietro, why do you think this critical project was delayed in the past? Can Armenia rekindle this project and leverage this north-south corridor as a counterweight to the planned Azerbaijan-Turkey corridor that is being touted by Aliyev and Erdogan, and uh, which is now enshrined in the November 9 capitulation agreement? I think absolutely they should uh, rekindle it if they're not already thinking along those lines. I mean, for Armenia, that is a lifeline. That north-south corridor is an absolute lifeline. And east-west can, you know, can be beneficial as well, too, but only on terms, again, that are acceptable to all sides. And I mean really acceptable not only to you know the governments, but also to the societies. And right now, as I say, the relations between the societies of Armenia and Azerbaijan are really, uh, you know, not in condition for there to be a, a genuine realization of a, a true, truly cooperative uh, east-west corridor. But in terms of the north-south, yes, absolutely, it's something that should be revisited uh, and it should be rekindled. And in addition, actually, there was a period where even Georgia was interested in the north-south corridor that they were actually, you know, seriously exploring this idea. In late 2015, early 2016, Georgia's energy minister, now uh, Tbilisi mayor, uh, Kaka Kaladze, was actually negotiating with Iran and also with Gazprom on placing Georgia within this corridor. But Azerbaijan was actually very uh, nervous about this because they were, uh, Georgia was not regarding Azerbaijan as a reliable supplier of energy in, at this moment. And Azerbaijan scrambled to ensure that it, uh, you know, it was in, in Georgia's eyes with the encouragement of the United States, which didn't want to see Russia and Iran enhance their uh, positions in the region as well. So in the end, actually, they were able to offer the Georgians a better deal and Georgia, you know, abandoned the idea. But again, it reminds us that this whole north, south, east, west, I mean, especially north, south corridor, north, south corridor is very crucial for the well-being of the region. In the ideal world, we shouldn't be thinking of these corridors as mutually exclusive. Today we do because we think of them in geopolitical terms, but for the whole region, for everybody existing in it, all these corridors are important. But especially, uh, you know, for Armenia, Iran, uh, and Russia, and also Georgia. That north-south corridor is is very significant. Marina, is, is Russia really, in your opinion, interested in the north-south corridor? Um, I think Russia is, if they're smart again, they should be interested in anything that is happening in Armenia that will benefit Armenia and will help the country in its existential matters, which is technically having China back to Iran, transporting its goods through Georgia and somewhere else, uh, strengthening the Armenia, and this way, Chinese will be benefiting from stopping the Turkish expansion towards east. The Russians will be benefiting having a strong four-post. I don't mind calling Armenia four-post anymore because let's be realistic. So yeah, they should be actually very much interested in it. But again, whether their plans with Caucasus, with South Caucasus, are in line with ours uh, or with Iranian or with Chinese, this one is I would be having hard time answering because at this point, looking at their logic, it's really non-predictable, like what exactly they want. Okay, you don't get Azerbaijan, then what do you want? Like how, what's gonna, what's gonna be next? What are the, what is the plan B in, in case this entire endeavor with uh, getting Azerbaijan into EA? I think uh, one theory is that this, uh, there is this group of people in Moscow, and there are different camps in Moscow, 
And I guess the Gazaviks, as they call them, are afraid of uh, mm-hmm. competition with Iran in terms of gas and, and, and so forth. So would that explain? As a short-sighted Gazaviks then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, absolutely. She's, I mean, they are, they are short-sighted if they don't see the importance of that relationship with Iran, with China, and prioritizing those relations over Turkey, let's say. So, or yeah. over gas. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Let's quickly jump to Armenian elections, uh, and uh, I know it's exciting, you know, compared with geopolitics. But anyway, so Nikol Pashinyan resigned. Long live Nikol Pashinyan. On Monday, April 25, Nikol Pashinyan resigned. On Monday, May 3, that is tomorrow for us, uh, as we record this podcast, the Armenian parliament is scheduled to hold the first vote in an attempt to elect a new prime minister. Per Pashinyan, there is an agreement between the three parliamentary parties, MyStep, Prosperous Armenia, and Bright Armenia, to not nominate a candidate twice in a row, leading to the dissolution of the parliament uh, and snap parliamentary elections. However, in his resignation announcement, Pashinyan said that he intends to remain as acting PM or caretaker prime minister during the interim period. Uh, and opposition has criticized this, arguing that Pashinyan has no legal basis to remain as a functioning PM. Marine, in the op- <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you, many in the opposition are still cautious on whether the elections will take place. Some still are in disbelief. Should we actually be more realistic now and say that, yes, the elections are going to happen? And what do you think will happen? Are there any surprises uh, that waiting for us as we head towards elections? Well, I was actually giggling because one of the supporters of Pashinyan said he has moral right to remain as a, <laughs> you know, serving or acting prime minister. And that moral, yes, and that moral was... right really made me laugh. Uh, but <laughs> that was Nikola Bardasarian, yeah. Yeah, but but that was in response to Pashinyan's yeah, own audio in 2018, where he said that you know after Sarah Sarah resignation, no one no one can be prime minister. Uh, sort of on the same point, he had different. Yeah. <laughs> so that yeah, that, that was funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's ironic, uh, but yeah. So uh, the situation in the country remains as it is. The, of course, those who do not trust Pashinyan and have very strong grounds for that believe that elections i mean we won't believe it until it happens actually because you know it's pashinyan uh on the other hand me i'm very skeptical when it comes to it's going to happen or it's not going to happen or whether what was going to be the result and uh, speculate on because to be honest whatever changes right now will not bring uh, and this is coming from mia uh, it's not going to bring like very big changes to the entire course of the country yes it might get in case kocharian Uh, wins the elections, which I'm very skeptical about. Uh, It might bring some sort of stability and predictability with Russians. But yet again, the overall course of the country will not depend from the uh, internal government of the of this country. So it's going to be always depending on what's going, ha- what is happening geopolitically, what is happening between West and East and Russians and Iranians. So we will going to be dealing with whatever is at stake. That's why for me, these elections are more of a uh, letting out this theme that was collected after the war, the defeat and the and the losing of the territories. I am also one of the people that is uh, skeptical about uh, elections happening or not. I believe that all the other uh, parties should not participate and they should actually boycotted the very last minute so that living Pashinyan with his team uh, to uh, to run these elections and, you know, be their own run their own show okay but however it's interesting to follow the processes like uh, especially for me is interesting to see the clash of ti- uh, titans in a way there's Sarksan's recent interview and uh and which will cover yeah. about the things that happened back in yeah back in 2018 uh so, Petra, do you yeah. agree that the opposition should have all like you know been unified around boycotting the elections yeah i mean i don't know i think that the thing is with this election, I don't necessarily think uh, I, I'm I'm skeptical about it being a, actually a, a, a fair election, because Pashinyan, you know, already he's doing very kind of sneaky moves by staying on in the interim. He's not really even resigning, and we know he's going to use the Ministry of Resources to his advantage to get reelected, and that's what the opposition, you know, is looking at. They're looking at that this is going to be a rigged game from the outset, and he's going to try and do everything he can. Uh, you know, to win, also use the information sphere too. So, you know, the opposition, they, they're, I mean, you know, they're right to be skeptical. Right. Because, I mean, is it, is it from the outset, is it going to be a fair contest? Is it going to be a free and fair election? 
by uh, you know this you know quote unquote democratic leader. Yeah. Everybody was saying, you know, how Pashinyan is this wonderful democratic leader. He's not democratic. And, I mean, you see his whole record is anti-democratic. And, and, and the parliament is busy passing laws left and right around regulating freedom of speech during elections. I think last week they passed a law that, you know, raises the penalties uh, for acts of hooliganism, right. especially if it's, if it's tied to elections. And I think they now want to outlaw cursing of public officials if it's related to their function as public <laughs> officials uh, but you can curse them in private uh, you know uh, so this is r very ridiculous but i wanted to switch the, like uh, so just two days ago despite all these misgivings the latest mpg gallup poll conducted in the last days of april had some interesting findings specifically it seems that between march and april march being the last time that the the same poll was conducted Pashinyan's or my steps uh, rating dropped by 4.5 points from 31.7 to 27.2, and here are some more interesting uh, details. Uh, the the question was asked if the if if elections were held the following Sunday, which political group would you support? Kocharyan's uh, rating uh, in that same uh, question rose from 5.9 percent to 8.1. So there seems to be some interesting dynamics there. Uh, the remaining parties, Prosperous Armenia, Bright Armenia, Republican Party, and the ARF, which all had uh, less than 5% previously, their rating, their, their rating drops dropped even further this month. Another thing worth mentioning, and I'll ask you then the question is, there were differences between regions. In Yerevan, uh, MySTEP enjoyed only 22.5% popularity, which is in stark contrast to the villages where they support, uh, where they get 34.9%. Uh, and this is, I, like, I guess this is where the administrative resources part may come in. But uh, likewise, Kocharyan enjoys a popularity of 11.5% in Yerevan and only 4.7% in villages. This drop in ratings for Pashinyan happened despite the fact that he effectively had an unofficial head start on the campaigning. You know, we've seen him uh, visiting regions, uh, giving speeches and so forth. Marine, do you think that this trend will continue? I think you previously said that you don't have much hopes in these elections, but anything surprising that you've heard so far in these polls? Actually, no, the polls are, I would say they're pretty close to be true in terms of numbers. Uh, but let's not forget that Yerevan and Sumik will be the deal breakers. And I also would like to mention that I am very skeptical about generally any polls that are conducted in Armenia because people tend to lie a lot about answering these questions. And uh, I can tell you that uh, like Repar Republican Party support and Kocharian support are probably the shadow support right now. They do not speak up. A lot of people do not give opinions, but they do uh, have the uh, sympathies towards voting for Kocharian or for the uh, Republican Party. So I think their numbers are uh, a little higher than they are seen in the in the in the charts. It's just because it's not popular to say I am going to vote for Kocharyan because people will be you know judging you and everybody is actually tired of all this process. So um, generally, yes, I am skeptical still, and I do agree absolutely about the fact that these elections will not be fair and free. Uh, these elections will be rigged. Uh, they will use massive administrative resources uh, to be able to actually uh, win uh, at least to the um, 50 to 60 percent of votes that uh, Nikol Pashinyan will literally do anything to to achieve this result uh, because they do all understand that it's not going to be uh, nice and fluffy for them as soon as they leave the office. So that's why they will do literally everything to to win these elections. Uh, and I think they will be able to secure it, unfortunately. Yeah. If the elections happen, <laughs> this is, I will always <laughs> leave this open. If the elections take place, they will be able to secure it. Unfortunately, regardless of the outcome of the elections, uh, there will be very tough demands on, the, on whatever government we come up with uh, to continue with the November 9 agreement. Of course, yes. And some will say, you know, uh, you know I heard... Um, Stepan Danielian, I believe, on Azat Utsun talking to uh, Tamrazian, and he said basically there is there is a, a group of very hardline Armenians who do not see like you know even if they are a minority, let's say, uh, you know it's going to be difficult to maintain even order. I think uh, post elections if Pashinyan somehow gets elected. So I'm wondering uh, about that even you know even assuming that you know things uh, there is no violence until the you know the elections end you know after the elections if if Pashinyan is still in power it's going to be very interesting to see how order is maintained 
I give you a lot of credit for still watching uh, Azatutun and uh, especially Danielian on it. But uh, I mean, I'm very skeptical about any any violence happening because if things did not escalate and happen until now, like uh, seven months after the war ended and after Pashinyan remains in power, I don't think anything okay. else will happen if he gets reelected uh, because uh, he, sooner closer we get to the elections, more he will be manipulating and speculating on people's emotions about previous government, about, you know, how much the, they got rich and everybody's poor because of the previous government. So all this will be, you know, the, it's just going to be the same old songs and he's going to secure his votes and be reelected. I don't think any violence will happen after that. And um, unfortunately, the Armenian Armed Forces, uh, I would expect them to react or the generals or whoever uh, is out there from the previous war experience or from the previous leadership that was supposed to uh, take certain actions, but they didn't. It's, it's seven months too, uh, too late for them to do anything, even after the elections. So I am very skeptical about violence being uh, uh, in place after the elections. Okay. The other major news this week was the third president of Armenia, uh, Sir Sarkisyan, giving an interview. You know, in one or two sentences, both of you, you know, maybe you could sort of give your impressions if you watched the interview. Uh, Marine Pietro, you know, any thoughts? I didn't have a chance to watch it, unfortunately. I did watch uh, most of it, and I can say that uh, as a, coming from a person who has been critical of Sir Sarkisyan for, uh, for his entire ruling period, I can say that I am respecting him more and more. And with this interview, he literally called out everyone who went against him during 2018, including Kocharyan, including Karen Karapetyan, including Russians, including Putin. So all this, he actually lined all of them up and uh, pointed at every event that happened and what and how and why Nikol Pashinyan was right and he was wrong and all this statement. So it was uh, very interesting in terms of breaking down to details and recalling the events that happened in 2018. Um, I think his main uh, purpose or his main motivation was to remind every actor in the internal political arena uh, about their uh, their sins in the past, so that not to you know come in as the savers and fresh guys, which is kind of good because I think if this country wants to move forward, people have to come out clean and uh, and confess and be open, because otherwise we will be uh, stuck in the same loop over and over again, you know the uh, revanchism all over again. So he was trying to pretty much point out that this uh, mistakes that happened in the past. So for me, it was quite a valuable interview to watch. Of course, uh, I also kind of am critical about him not being uh, very honest about their mistakes as well. But that takes probably some time or courage, which they will probably have yeah. at some point. In, My, in fact, I, I just know. want to add one thing. He not only criticized Putin and Kocher and, and the rest, he also said, and maybe this was just to sort of make the pill easy to swallow, he said there are both, you know, he didn't lose to Pashinyan, but to much more powerful forces, both in the north and in the west. Exactly. And, you know, we can think mm -hmm. of, you know, the civil society folks, you know, who largely backed this re revolution or, you know, quote-unquote revolution mm -hmm. as being the foot soldiers of that revolution. Uh, so yes, it, it seems like everyone's stars aligned against uh, Ser Sarkisyan in 2018. Oh yeah, as I said, it was a parade of planets for Nikol Pashinyan to come to power. It was not his show. It was backed and organized with uh, multiple actors in the, play, well, in the field. Well, so. there's so much more to talk about, but we'll have to call it a stop mm -hmm. for now. Thank you, everyone, and uh, talk well, to you, you next Hobie. week. Thank you for having Thank me. you for having us. Thank you all. That concludes our program for this Weekend Review episode. We hope it has helped your understanding of some of the issues from the previous week. We look forward to your feedback and your suggestions for issues to cover in greater depth. Contact us on our website at grung.org or on our Facebook page ann-grung or in our Facebook group grung-Armenian News Network. Special thanks to Laura Osborne for providing the music for our podcast. On behalf of everyone in this episode, we wish you a good week. Don't forget to subscribe to our channels, like our pages, and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.